Hey, thanks for being a part of the conversation. Let's do some pod crashing. Episode number 297 is with Allison Flom from the podcast Erased, the murder of Elma Sands. Allison, I'm so proud of you with this because you are really bringing a plan and a purpose to what podcasting is. And it's all about the writers, the story sharing, the journey with our imaginations. And man, when I tapped into this, it was like, yes, this is what it's about. Man, Arrow, hype me up. (laughs) I need that energy. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I was not even like a big podcast connoisseur before this. I really wanted to tell the story urgently. The pandemic hit. It felt like the most direct way to amplify something that I really wanted to talk about. And it was so inherently theatrical as a story. And I love theater and I love writing theater that it felt like Let's deliver the story in a way that's like easy to understand and follow and is like an experience to listen to and has that kind of margin of empathy building and drama and understanding that makes it, you know, that brings the listener into the story and kind of implicates them in it. So that's what I was hoping to do. I'm really grateful to be here. So, so grateful that you listened to it, too. I can't imagine the emotional things that you went through in bringing this together, because, you know, to take it from a thought and put it on a page or on a computer screen and then you have to share it with the actors. I mean, that's a journey. It was a journey and we had all the actors come in and record the whole thing in three days. There was a lot of just flexibility and thinking on our toes. And I got to direct it with a bunch of people in the room kind of feeding off each other's energy. And, um, you know, I, it was so, I'm so privileged and lucky to be able and supported to be able to do this and to see this through because I became obsessed with this story like six or seven years ago. And I just, was I was just losing sleep about it. The dissonance between her name and story being erased and lost to history and all the other kind of men in power and the people around her getting their names and legacies and stories, you know, landmarked and preserved. It was so uh, incongruous with the way that I felt it should be that my relentlessness and the fact that I couldn't (laughs) stop thinking about it and talking about it just kind of naturally drew people to it. And Alison Williams, I mean, bless her. She understood my urgency and my mission and with me was just guided by the passion for people knowing the name Elma Sands uh, and that kind of was our engine. Hopefully this is just the beginning. Hopefully we see this on TV soon. Oh my God, not just TV, but you know, erased and then you put somebody else's name in there. I mean, I think this is the first step of a brand new beginning. That's the idea. I mean, yeah, I I don't know if I, uh, I don't know if my manager is going to be too happy that I'm sharing this on the radio, but I'm going to, I mean, my idea for this is that it's an anthology series about women who have been erased by the injustice system because there are already so many stories that I can just think of where there are these chapters, these formative cases and moments in history, in American history that have been shaped by whatever's happening in the justice system. And the justice system has relied on the erasure uh, and the minimizing of someone's Mm -hmm. story of an individual, of a woman uh, to for it to thrive, for it to be, for the system to do what it's supposed to do, someone has to lose, someone has to be forgotten um, or made smaller. And that kind of digging those names, re-excavating those names and putting them back in to history is part of my life mission. Oh my God, you just you just shot me to a thought. You know, you're, you're talking about this has to happen in order for this to happen. That's like, you can't get a traffic light at a corner unless somebody's been killed at a stop sign. I mean, something has got to be erased from that picture. That is so true. That was actually a point that I used to make on a walking tour um, when I 
where I was giving walking tours downtown for a long time. And there's this corner um, leading to the Williamsburg Bridge where, you know, people petitioned forever for the street, which was way too wide because it was built for like a trolley car. Um, and just like the infrastructure really couldn't keep up. It was dangerous. And until a 12 year old was hit and killed mm-hmm. there. And now the corner has been renamed Dashani Santana way. And that's her name. And uh, that nothing changed. It was community organizing, continuing to put pressure on the city. It didn't change. Nothing changed. And then tragedy struck. And then an adaptation was made. And isn't that so sad about humans that we kind Mm. of have to wait until the worst happens to realize that the worst could happen. The podcast we're talking about is Erase, the murder of Elma Sands. Interesting how this easily could play out in this 21st century. But but you it's it's the 1800s. And to me, it opens up my heart and saying, hey, look, before I got here, somebody else was already here and there was some junk going down. Yeah, man, that's why I wrote it like in 2024 kind of modern language, because it just sounds like something that could happen now. And unfortunately, so little has changed in 224 years since this trial that it does have these staggering similarities to like the lawyers go in and they want to win. And those with money and power and connection and privilege are those who are best set up to take on the system. And in this trial, Burr and Hamilton already knew and or went to college with and or worked with people on the jury and the judge and the connections were, you know, forged way in advance. And that continues to be exactly how our system operates today. It's set up with those, you know, with the most privileged set up people to win and everyone else to be erased. We've been trained that the the life of the Quakers, they are the people of peace. But you kind of introduce us to a different layer of their journey. Mm. So much of this um, was set in motion because Elma got to live in this Quaker boarding house. Mm. She moved from New Cornwall, New York, where she was raised by a single mom uh, when she was 18. She moved to the city, which I feel like is just a story in itself. Like farm girl moves to Manhattan to try to make it. She's brave. She's cool. She gets to New York and her cousin, Catherine Ring, who's played by Allison Williams, runs a Quaker boarding house with her kind of degenerate, alcoholic, abusive husband, Elias. And Elma lives there without paying room and board because she's family. They run a hat shop out of the boarding house. It's like a mixed use kind of row house, which a lot of these were. She worked in the hat shop. She didn't pay room and board. And she started hooking up with Levi Weeks in the boarding house when Catherine Ring and the other women and children in the house went upstate to quarantine from the yellow fever, which is another just staggering similarity to today. So Elma and Levi were having this kind of premarital relationship in a Quaker boarding house where that was frowned upon. So on the night of December 22nd, Elma thought that they were going out to elope. The plan was to kind of ease everyone's concerns about their premarital antics in the house by simply getting married. So Elma thought and told her cousin so that she was going out on December 22nd, the night that she was murdered, she was all dressed up to get married. And that night she was led by Levi to the Lisbonard Meadows where the Manhattan well uh, is and she was murdered. And um, that is how this all kind of started was just, and it's not like, you know, it was just maybe the pressure from from living in that house and wanting to make her cousin happy. And um I don't know enough. Like I don't know enough about Quakers to say that this was like about Quakers, but I think um, just from what I see, there was natural human chaos yeah, yeah. in 
the backdrop of a house that they were trying to keep the peace in. Wow, wow. See, this is playing out like you you relived it. In other words, you you went back by way of a dream or someone tapped on your shoulder from a spirit world because the way that you just described that, it's like you've lived it. I've been living with and in these documents for a long time trying to kind of get my arms around the world of this. And because these are 20-somethings in New York and I'm a 20-something in New York, there is a certain level of connectedness that I feel to these characters and a certain level of like authenticity and joy and comedy and texture that I want to bring to their experience in every iteration of this story. And Elma... I don't know if she was a hero or a. am not trying to say she was like a martyr or I don't really know anything about her. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a key piece of this, too, is that for all of the information that there is about this moment in history and this trial and what it did, there's not even the proper spelling of her name anywhere. Oh I can't find her birthday or a drawing of her. So for how much I've tried to immerse myself in her story and her life and know her. I really don't know her at all. And her, I'm like getting emotional about it because that idea that there is so much, but there is just so little about her. That's my mission. That's why I've done this because we have a system that's okay with that. Just using and discarding stories for the like upholding of certain protocols that don't even make sense in the first place. So in this trial, I saw something so much deeper that I could tap into as like, I'm so lucky to be a 20 something in New York right now and have the life that I do. But what if this wasn't the time and place that I was born? What would I have done in this moment? Would I have been silent? Would I have been on the front lines kind of looking for her? Would I have been with her cousin, Catherine, trying to you know, sway the oh court of God. public opinion? Um, yeah. I could go on and on. I could cry. Can you imagine if you were? That would be the TV show. The author of this story from 224 years ago goes back in time and is in there in that physical courtroom as it's happening. You know what happened. But the thing is, if you if you bring something to it, that changes the whole entire story. And if I could stand up and be like, listen, jurors, if you guys do this, it's going to stay this way in the system forever. And if you make this decision right now, this will continue to affect millions of people forever. So just low stakes, you know, do without what you will, you guys, you know, it's really it was really unbelievable how they they had never even had an adjournment. And so there they are in the courtroom and it's, you know, two at two o'clock in the morning and the jurors are like, I am so tired, your honor. And the and he's like, OK, I mean, I guess we have to sequester them because it would be bad if they went home and started talking to the paper and started talking to each other. So uh, and you see the judge in these transcripts say, where can we sequester 12 guys overnight on short notice? And the constable's like, uh, city hall. Like, I don't know. Like, do we feed them? And that continues in the system today. These decisions, if I was there, I would be screaming like this isn't just a decision about right now. This is a decision about a system. And the amount of power that you have is way too much for your own good, you know? Wow. Suicide is a part of the story. But the thing is, is that it wasn't suicide because a scream was heard. That scream is the one sound that, to me, brought this story to to the limelight. Mm, Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it was screams of murder and help me that were heard um, in about five to ten minutes, you know, surrounding the time of the murder. So that's a key piece for 
the prosecution is just why would someone be screaming murder and help me when taking their own life? Why would they be kind of dressed up, say that they were going out to get married? You know, none of it made sense. But Burr and Hamilton really relied on the idea that they could decimate her character and say that Elma was this like suicidal, like opiate addicted, destitute person that was entirely reliant on Levi for survival or on dependent on the ring. They could paint her however was going to be convenient for the story that they were telling and it was very convenient for them to say she probably died by suicide but I have to tell you Arrow because it's so important and because it was documented 224 years ago you know she had four bruises a row of four bruises on her neck and another Mm. one on her chest and both of those rows of bruises felt clear to the initial autopsy guys, I call them that because they were not qualified at all to be doing autopsies, that those marks were made by fingers. And her neck was broken Mm. when they carefully pulled her out of the well. Likely her neck was broken before she was thrown into the well. And so none of the physical evidence was remotely consistent with the idea that she would have taken her own life. And then the character witnesses talking to her friends and the people who loved her most, there was also no evidence that she was someone who might have had the thought of taking her own life. Um, So the idea that that was their thread that they were going to base this on. Let's make her sound like this this sad person that we don't even, if it was a suicide, then there's no case. Okay, case closed. It was, it was profoundly lazy of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, and that laziness then equated to good lawyering, mm. unfortunately. What, what made you take that step to get into podcasting? Because you said you were brand new to this because it is a journey. I was in it back in 2012 where the major company said, I don't know what you're doing. Just keep doing it. We'll figure it out later. You had to have gone through the same mm-hmm. thing where you couldn't find believers in the beginning. It's true. And um, wanting to tell the story just on the big screen, wanting to go from like zero to 60 of like, I'm a tour guide and I have an idea to suddenly wanting this to be as huge as I know it can be. There had to be this intermediate step, uh, this proof that there is interest and there is a reason to tell this really dramatic story in this way. And especially just during the quarantine, being able to talk to Allison on the phone all the time and keep adjusting the script so that we were like ready to go when we got everyone into the studio. It was just so urgent. And there was just this direct route of audio drama of like, let's drop the reader right into this completely overwhelming courtroom experience uh, make it kind of easy to listen to uh, and see if we can kind of revitalize the radio play and use the fact that people are listening to podcasts to do something kind of magic and kind of create like feelings and empathy and and like real storytelling, you know? Well, your writing and the production part of it is is very interesting in the way that, remember that with podcasting, it's people in motion. They're not sitting at home on the sofa with a remote control in their hand listening to a podcast. They're in motion. They're looking for that personal escape. And you've developed a story here that keeps us engaged and, and keeps us on the road and, and really, you know, starting to get into a conversation when we get out of the car to go into a place of business. Mm, I hope so. Thank you. But but that right there is to, to own that language or to develop that language takes discipline. Where did you find that connection to we, the listeners? Because you've, you've got that string to us. Mm. Um, my kind of relentless wanting for people to care about this. Yeah. 
started when there were just seeds of an idea and I was just at the party or at the brunch or the bar or whatever, like making people listen to the Elma Sand story to the point where my friends were like, can you please not talk about 1799 <laughs> right now? I think my sheer like insatiable want for everyone to know her name and story was a guiding light because I was thinking about what's the best way to like deliver this to the listener, Mm -hmm. but not just have them like consume it, really have them experience it and feel like they're in the courtroom or they're in the boarding house for this scene to posit the listener as a witness or as a key player in history. I When I feel implicated in a story, no matter how, what genre or medium I'm receiving that story, when I feel like I'm a part of it, it's harder for me not to do something yeah. when I walk away. And I do feel like there's something in this that will lead to real change, policy change or social change or changing of minds. Maybe someone has listened to this and then sat on a jury and thought differently before they made that decision or they were less impressed by the lawyering antics and the performance and maybe they were listening for something else, you know, I do want to see a world where there are conviction review units and a system that takes accountability for itself and doubles back and says, this was broken or this was wrong from the beginning. And I think stories like this, if someone can listen to it, feel a part of it and feel affected inside that story, they might walk away and do something. And I would just love to be a tiny piece of somebody going and doing something that makes our system work different than it worked in 1800. Yeah. So easily you could have just gone out and got, a, you know, got a journalist and they could have voiced it like 60 minutes, but you didn't. And I love the idea that you got the actors involved in this because there are sound bites there, but they're done in a very unique way. It's, it's through the power of inflection through all the actors. Yeah. And I had such a great cast um, and everyone, most people played multiple roles and it was it was really uh, an honestly hilarious, joyous mix of like I was starstruck because Allison Williams and Tony Goldwyn were in it, and Barry Shack, who is like you know the smartest, most brilliant, nation's brightest lawyer, who's like playing Aaron Burr, <laughs> and then you know Colden, who's the prosecuting attorney, is played by like uh, the guy that I went to prom with, Max Whittington Cooper. <laughs> I have like you know my high school friends voicing different characters in the ensemble. Like it was just uh, out of such love that every. Everyone was there and wanting to see it through because there was an understanding that I would not rest until we told this story. And I did want it to be like dynamic and fun. And we, I don't know, we, we did have fun making it. Wow. Well, congratulations on the podcast, Erased the Murder of Elma Sands. I do expect to talk to you many more times in the future. Like I said, this is the first step of your brand new beginning. Well, I would love to come back and talk to you anytime. You really are a joy. And that ultimate, the hype up at the beginning really was life-giving. Thank you so much. Well, you be brilliant today, okay? You too. Go get them.